The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. I'm Vinny Politan, and welcome to the Court TV Podcast. This week, we have an audio edition of our latest Court TV special, which takes a closer look at the Idaho student murders. This documentary special pays tribute to Ethan Chapin, Zana Kernodal, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Gonzalez, the four young lives tragically taken last November, and explores the mounting evidence against their accused killer as he awaits trial. Have a listen. This is the Court TV Podcast. The four were stabbed with a knife, but no weapon has been located. The true crime story that sent shockwaves across the country. All of us are shaken. Four murders and then the guys just running around on loose is a little unnerving. The victims, four college students. Ethan, Zena, Madison, and Kaylee. I miss her smile. She was so giving. Positive and fun, and we love her and miss her so much. Now, a PhD criminology student accused of the murders. How do you call him, Brian? Detectives arrested 28-year-old Brian Christopher Kohlberger. Hello. How you doing? How y'all doing today? Every inquiring mind wants to know why. Why would Brian Koberger do this? The maximum penalty is death and or imprisonment for life. Do you understand? Yes. Plus the evidence. On that knife sheath was DNA. Likely left there by the killer. Including those 12 times when he's hanging around this house. You better have a pretty good reason for this. Guess what? The defendant. The suspect, the accused, what does he drive? A white Elantra. The way that we have been convicting Koberger is absolutely appalling and disgusting. I want all the evidence out. I want it to be clear. If I'm the parent of one of these four kids, he is the boogeyman. I try not to think too much about any of the darker side of the aspects. I just try to stay positive. There'll be days where I have to focus on the negativity, but today's not one of them. I miss her smile and that she was, she was so giving. When she came home, she was always giving me a hug, always making sure she got a hug before she left the house. Just the simple things. These girls were born 14 days apart. We loved them both so much. It was a great, great story, and I'm sad that it ended, and we lost them both at the same time. I'll never see this car as mine. She paid for it. She felt like this was a super cute car. It was emotional riding with Steve in Kaylee's car on her birthday. We saw that vehicle at that home each day inside the crime scene tape. Kaylee and her friends, Madison Mogan, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin were stabbed to death at the University of Idaho. And that car was part of the reason Kaylee was in town that weekend of the murders. 
When she bought her car, she was she she it wasn't a birthday, but it was a gift that she gave herself because she just got a new job. So I remember her being super excited for that and you know, showing Maddie and driving down there and showing her friends off with it. Those friends, Kaylee, Maddie, Zanna, Dylan Mortensen, and Bethany Funk, all lived together in the house on King Road, along with Kaylee's dog, Murphy. Murphy, you've been a bad boy. <laughs> There's a video of all five of the girls together in the home posted just two weeks before the murders. They're laughing, making fun of each other, imitating each other. Did anybody do their chores today? I'm just gonna do it. Get, get out of here. You seriously gotta get out of here. You're <laughs> if you look back at their moments, you can actually see their whole lives. These girls really did do the social media stuff. Get down, get down. And these girls, you know, they were everywhere. So people got a taste and a look and a feel of who they really were. I think people connected with that. And then if you go back, you can see like, I hate to say it, but like the last hours of their lives. Those last hours included two photos posted by Kaylee. On one of them, she wrote, one lucky girl to be surrounded by these people. According to investigators that last night, Ethan and Zana go to a party at the Sigma Chi house. They're there till about 1.45 a.m. that morning. Maddie and Kaylee go downtown, downtown Moscow, to a bar called The Corner Club. And then about 1.30 a.m., they walk to a food truck to grab a bite to eat. And then what was the macaroni? Uh, don't forget to remove the spoon. Carbonara. The carbonara. Mac of the week. Here, I'll grab them for Excellent. You. And then click see rewards. Enjoy. And it looks like you not quite have enough ones yet. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. Um, $10. Oh, so about 10 minutes later, the video shows Maddie reaching to grab the food they ordered. Kaylee has her cell phone up as if she's filming the moment. They're laughing with each other until you see them run out of the frame. By 2 a.m., all five girls and Ethan Chapin were back at the house on King Road. In just over two hours, four of the six would be dead. Everybody here? My name is Chief James Fry with the Moscow Police Department. I'm going to be reading from my notes today because I want the information you received to be extremely accurate. The four were stabbed with a knife but no weapon has been located at this time. There was no sign of forced entry into the residence. Based on details at the scene, we believe this was an isolated, targeted attack on our victims. Right away, I think everyone knew this was gonna be a big story. I mean, you've got four college students taken down at once inside the same home, and the chief comes out pretty quickly and, and says, listen, no forced entry here. This was a targeted, isolated attack. So most of us thought it should be solved pretty quickly. But that's not what happened here. We need to make sure we clarify. Okay. Have them restart or restart this feed or... We arrived in Moscow just days after the murders and you could immediately sense that this was a community on edge and you could understand why. Four young people have been brutally murdered and nobody knows why and nobody knows who's responsible. I actually met a group of professors from the University of Idaho. They were out for a bike ride and they really summed up what the community was going through. It has deeply affected all our students and our faculty and our staff. And it's been just a struggle to, to get through this last week, so. How hungry is this university, this town for answers? Very much so. 
the fact that there isn't an answer is makes makes this even worse you know all of us are shaken i've heard from people all across the country talking about this tragedy it's a small college town we all know each other people in the community knew these students so everybody's affected one way or another and part of it's because we just don't know anything yet we also met the prosecuting attorney bill thompson any new details nothing that i can share how was the crime scene um I can't talk about it. Everybody's working together. The, the investigation is still active, absolutely. Yeah, how long they're going to stay here at the home? Don't know, as long as they need to. I ended up sitting down with Bill Thompson in his office. And remember, they had not identified a suspect. And a lot of people were wondering, are they going to solve this? And it was one of his answers to me that made me think they know a lot more than what they're saying. Would you feel safe having a child living near or on campus? I would, um, but I say that knowing that many people would not. And I'm probably in a, I'm not probably, I, I'm in a different situation because uh, of the information and the knowledge that I have of how the investigation is progressing. Moscow is a very typical university town. It has a, a vibrant downtown with places to eat, places to drink, places to gather. There's not really much surrounding Moscow, um, rolling hills of just wheat fields and various other farms. Small town feel. Um, I think it's roughly 25,000 people, give or take a couple thousand. I think of North Idaho as a pretty off the map type of place, pretty safe place, very family friendly. And to have four murders and then the guys just running around on loose is a little unnerving. Weeks after the murders of Zana Kurnodal, Ethan Chapin, Maddie Mogan, and Kaylee Gonsalves, no arrest had been made. To the point that a lot of the students there on campus had cleared out because there was this fear among the community. And even some of the victim's family members had fears that the investigation was stalled. I had uh, private investigators and different, different things. And that's why they told me to slow down, Steve, you know, this thing. You know, you, me as a, as a father, it's never fast enough, and I want to just charge ahead like, uh, probably just like a dumbass, but that's what I knew. What the families and the public didn't know was that the detectives had some significant evidence and leads, including DNA and a potential eyewitness. At the time of the murders, according to investigators, Kaylee and Maddie were on the third floor of the house in Maddie's room. Kaylee's dog Murphy was across the hall in Kaylee's room. Ethan and Zana were a floor below. Across from them was Dylan Mortensen, and on the first floor was Bethany Funk, who was in her room. Dylan will be a key witness in all this because she's on the same floor as two of the murders and she opens her door three different times. Now, the first couple of times, she really didn't see anything, but she was hearing voices. Maybe it was the dog. Maybe somebody was, was crying or something. She wasn't quite clear what she heard. But the third time she opens the door, she sees this tall figure dressed in all dark colors, and she noticed his bushy eyebrows. And then this man walks right past her. Imagine what it would be like to be a young woman who opens the door and sees this man all in black and all you really see are his eyebrows and he's tall and he's big. 
and he just killed four people with a knife. He walks right past you and out the door. How close to death were you? It gives me shivers to just think about what that is. And that must just roll through her head every single day. Yeah, that's gonna stick with a jury. According to investigators, Dylan described herself as being in, quote, frozen shock when she saw a man inside her home in the middle of the night. She was so scared, she locked herself in her bedroom. But the thing that raised eyebrows is that nobody did anything about it. In fact, 911 was not called until noon the next day, about eight hours after the estimated time of the murders. Some people, when they're very frightened, they just shut down and they tend to isolate and hide and basically it's a safety, seeking safety response. If she had been drinking or under the influence of something, she might have just shut down because she really didn't know what to do. The major piece of evidence that the public didn't know about was a knife sheath left behind likely by the killer. It was found partly under Madison Mogan's body and the comforter on her bed. On the snap of that knife sheath was DNA. So investigators had DNA from the crime scene, and they took the DNA and they ran it through the National Crime Database, and there were no hits, no matches. But the DNA was still useful because you could eliminate potential suspects. And there were a lot of them, not only ones that law enforcement was looking at, but a whole bunch that people online, all those true crime sleuths that are out there, were looking at as well. I made a video a few weeks ago. Jeremy Regan was included in that video, and a lot of people since then have said that he seemed very suspicious or he was the murderer. My name is Jeremy Regan, and I live just a couple doors down from where the murders happened. I first met Jeremy Regan about a week after the murders. He was a neighbor of the girls on King Road. Once people saw Jeremy on camera, many started to speculate that he possibly was the killer. What was it like to be accused of something so horrible? Offensive. Um, they watched my interview and they said, hey, he's kind of weird. It must be him. And so then they dug into everything I ever did on social media, stuff that my parents had posted about me, taking everything super far out of context. For some people, it was definitely worse than others. I know the various Jacks and Jakes, um, they got hammered. Jack Decor and Jake Schreiger, these two guys are the boyfriends of Kaylee and Maddie. As a matter of fact, uh, Jack shared a dog, Murph, with Kaylee. So a lot of people are looking at them and investigators looked at them as well, but cleared them. So law enforcement says these guys are innocent, but the folks online weren't convinced. There was also Jack Showalter, who was at the food truck when Maddie and Kaylee were there. He became known as Hoodie Guy. So people were analyzing the food truck video and they thought he looked quite suspicious. You know, there's been a lot of speculation and rumors. We are the official source of information. Individuals who are being harassed in these, this situation, uh, people need to be careful. Another early focus of the investigation was video. Detectives gathered recordings from homes, businesses all around the time of the murders in that area. And one thing stood out, one vehicle stood out. That was a white Hyundai Elantra. We're looking for that car because we believe through our investigation that that car was in the area during the time of the murders. 
According to investigators, beginning at 3.29 a.m., the white Elantra made three separate passes by the house on King Road. Then at 4.04, they say it was back for a fourth time, stopping in front of the house before traveling on to do a three-point turn. It then drove past the house again and out of the camera's view. At 4.20, it was back in view and leaving the area at a high rate of speed. So everyone's looking for this car, this white Elantra, and there's an officer, a campus police officer from Washington State University, across the state border, who decides to run a list of all the white Elantras on campus. And he finds one. It's registered to a guy named Brian Kohlberger. They end up finding his car in the parking lot of Kohlberger's campus apartment. When they run his name, they find that he had been pulled over twice in the months before the murders, once in Moscow and once in Pullman. Hello. Hello, sir. Hi, I'm Officer Loingus. Stops being audio and video recorded. I was just slightly into the crosswalk, so, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, where I'm from Pennsylvania, we mm -hmm. actually don't have, like, crosswalks. Oh, So even if you're, if you're kind of slightly, they have, there's a little bit more leeway as well. Like, there are a few lines, like, there's one white line and there's another one, mm -hmm. like, there's, like, a, like a certain yeah. margin from which you can actually kind of put your vehicle, place your vehicle. During the traffic stop in Moscow, Koberger gave the officer his cell phone number. Now, when you get a phone number, it changes everything because you get access to it in a different way. That's one more piece of evidence, one more piece of the puzzle. Is it enough to see what the puzzle says? Not necessarily, but you get closer. According to investigators, Koberger's phone records showed that between 2.27 a.m. and 4.48 a.m. the morning of the murders, Koberger's phone was turned off or in airplane mode or possibly out of battery, but it wasn't connecting to any cell phone tower. Sometimes it's not about evidence. It's about the lack of evidence that actually matters. In this particular case, we had a cell phone that was turned off for a very specific window of time. During a window of time where four people were murdered and he is the singular suspect, that means something. Investigators say that when they looked back at Koberger's cell phone records in the five months leading up to the murders, that his phone was in the area of the girl's home on 12 separate occasions. This was not just something where he happened to be in the region one time and it's easily explainable. The problem is, is now you really have to be able to explain that other dozen times the month before. You better have a pretty good reason for this. Coming up, the arrest. Hey, Brian. Brian, how are you doing? How are you feeling? How are you feeling, Brian? How strong is the evidence against Brian Koberger? You read the affidavit and you just find out that he was stalking them, he was hunting them. He was just a person looking for an opportunity. Imagine what happens when you're finally able to get the results of the DNA sample. We got this guy. We've got this guy. We don't know when and how this DNA got there. I'm not at all worried about the DNA. Last night, in conjunction with the Pennsylvania State Police, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, detectives arrested 28-year-old Brian Christopher Kohlberger in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, on a warrant for murders of Ethan, Zena, Madison, 
and Kaylee. Mr. Koberger was taken into custody without incident. The scene was turned over to the FBI evidence response team for processing. According to a Monroe County, Pennsylvania prosecutor, when SWAT arrived at the family home of Brian Koberger, they found him standing in his parents' kitchen at 1.30 in the morning. Koberger was found awake uh, in the kitchen area, uh, dressed in shorts and a shirt and wearing um, latex uh, medical type gloves and apparently was taking his personal trash and putting it into separate Ziploc baggies. The DNA found on the knife sheath under Madison Mogan's body was the piece of the puzzle investigators needed. Three days before Koberger's arrest, detectives used trash from Koberger's parents' home for a DNA sample that turned out to be a match to the suspected killer's father. Imagine what happens when you're finally able to get the results of the DNA sample that you pull from the father, you can just hear the champagne popping. This is a quad murder. That has to be elation in that squad room, in that war room, when they're sitting together and they're looking at each other and going, we got this guy. We've got this guy. After Brian Koberger was taken into custody in Pennsylvania, he met with an attorney who said publicly that Koberger told him he believed that he would be exonerated. He is very intelligent. Uh, in my hour conversation with him, that comes off. Uh, I can tell that. Uh, and he understands where we are right now. Hey, Brian. Brian, how are you doing? How are you feeling? How are you feeling, Brian? Even though Brian Koberger wasn't fighting extradition, he still had to appear in a Pennsylvania courtroom. I was inside of that courtroom when he walked in and everyone was able to see him for the first time. Uh, his mother broke down into tears. The Koberger family, they were sitting on the front row of that courtroom. He made sure to make that eye contact with them and he kept looking at them. Big breaking news, folks, just moments ago. Here it is, the arrival of the accused killer in Idaho. It was quite a scene when Koberger arrived back in Idaho. He was taken off the plane in Pullman and put into a pickup truck, and then a caravan of law enforcement vehicles drove him into the Latah County Jail parking lot where media and even members of the public were outside waiting for him. The next time we saw him would be in a courtroom. The maximum penalty for that offense, if you plead guilty or are found guilty, is up to death and or imprisonment for life. Do you understand? Yes. Unlike in his Pennsylvania appearance, where Koberger looked back to see his family in the courtroom, he seemed to make a point in Idaho not to do so, likely because he knew the victim's families would be in the gallery. I feel like he's scared to look at me in the eyes and start to understand what's about to happen to him. You know, he picked the wrong family. So once the suspect appears in court, prosecutors release the probable cause affidavit, and this stuff is filled with detail after detail after detail, things we didn't know, 18 pages worth. And at that point, the public got some answers. But more importantly, the families finally got some answers. You read the affidavit and you just find out that nobody understands exactly why, but he was stalking them, he was hunting them. The affidavit in this case lays out the evidence against Brian Koberger, but there is a gag order here, so we don't know everything the prosecution has. But a lot of people think 
He's the guy, he must be guilty. But there's a long way to go and a lot of people think that this case isn't a slam dunk. It's absolutely disgusting. Uh, this guy does not have a presumption of innocence. He has the assumption of guilt. I'm Sarah Azari. I'm a criminal trial attorney in Los Angeles. I'm currently a legal analyst for News Nation, and I am the host of the Presumption podcast. You know, pre-trial convictions of high-profile defendants in high-profile cases is nothing new, but Koberger is a whole other level. And I think not only we found him guilty of slaying the four Idaho students, but we've decided that he's gonna get the death penalty the most significant piece of evidence for prosecutors is the DNA of the defendant found on the knife sheath of the alleged murder weapon located underneath victim Madison Mogan's body. We don't know when and how this DNA got there. So if Brian Koberger is person A and he touches this knife sheath, and then somehow this knife sheath is picked up by somebody else. I mean, he could touch it, he could handle it, it could be anything. And then that person then somehow is in this King's Road home. That is a perfect explanation of how Koberger's DNA was on that knife sheath. Is insufficient to place him in that home, let alone to place the murder weapon in his hands. That's why I'm not at all worried about the DNA. I'm Tiffany Roy, and I'm a forensic DNA expert. I work privately in the area of forensic DNA and forensic biology. I've been doing this work for 17 years. DNA can be transferred onto items that people have never contacted and never touched. It can be found in rooms where people have never set foot. He may never have touched that sheath, and his DNA could have been transferred there by some contact with another item or another person. We can't tell how it got there. We can't tell when it got there. Or it could be there because he committed this quadruple murder and took the lives of these four students. And maybe when he was closing the snap, his thumb touched it before he even showed up at the murder scene. And maybe that knife sheath got loose because those girls were fighting for their lives. Now, you take that evidence in conjunction with all the other evidence, including those phone records, wow. Investigators believe that Koberger's cell phone was off or in airplane mode around the estimated time of the murders because he turned it off. We've been saying it was off, his phone was off. We don't know if it was off. It could have been off, it could have been in airplane mode, or it could have just simply not picked up signal during that time. What's odd, of course, and what's problematic for the defense is that his phone did pick up signal before the murders and after the murders. Another significant coincidence, for those who believe in coincidences, I don't, is that there's this white car that's driving around and around at the time of the murders, close to the scene of the murders, caught on video. And guess what? The defendant, the suspect, the accused, what does he drive? A white Elantra. The car's driving around, but then suddenly, during the window of the murders, we don't know where this car was. We don't know where it was parked. We just know nothing about the car. Identification of the Hyundai Elantra as like the suspect vehicle, that's a problem. Another part of the case against Brian Koberger is an eyewitness account, Dylan Mortensen, one of the surviving roommates. She told police that she saw a man around the time of the murders dressed in black, bushy eyebrows, wearing a mask covering his nose and his mouth that walked past her down the hallway. 
And then we have Dylan, the surviving roommate, and she's so afraid that she goes in her back in her bedroom and locks herself up and then doesn't call 911 for eight hours later. Okay, that is highly unusual. We look to expected behavior, expected response, reasonable response. That is what makes sense to jurors. Jurors are normal people. So you tell them a story, it better make sense, right? And it doesn't make sense. Credibility always matters with witnesses. And this witness comes across as credible. Is she flawed? Yes. Hey guys, Moscow PD. Hey, turn the music down. Turn the music down. Hello, miss. What's your name? Zanna. Zanna, do you live here? Yes. We've already talked to Maddie once and told her the same thing. The house at 1122 Keene Road, where four University of Idaho students were murdered, was known as a college party house going back before Kaylee, Maddie, Zanna, Dylan, and Bethany all lived there. In the fall of 2022, just a few months before the murders, Moscow police responded to a noise complaint at the house on multiple occasions. And if I do have to come back here, uh, 300-some dollar tickets coming your way. Okay. And it only gets more expensive from there. Is that fair? Yeah, that's okay. fair. Absolutely. There was even an instance where there are people at the house, but none of the roommates are even there. Hey, How goes it? Oh, hey. How are you? Who lives here? Um, uh, we're not actually... You, know, I don't you don't know who lives here? here? No, okay. no, I don't. We're just here for a noise complaint. So everyone here is trespassing? Well, no one's here that's trespassing, but no one no one that lives here is here right now. So where'd they go? They're just not here. I have no clue where they went. No clue. So you guys just throwing a party in, in, in their house at the time? They were here at one point. They're not here right now. I just I they, just searched all the rooms. They left and went over to some other party, and everyone is about to I just searched go all over the to another party. Okay. Who does live here? What are their names? I am actually not sure. Jeremy Reagan lived near the house on King Road for a few years and saw a lot. Tell me about uh, the house. What do you know about the house? So when I moved here my first year, that house was not super bad, notorious for like students going in and out partying all the time. My second year, there was a ton of people all the time, in and out constantly. And then my third year, which is the year that all this happened, it was much more similar to the first year I was here. Um, they did have more stuff going on there, but they were definitely nowhere near as loud, as crazy as that second year that I was here. Does the fact that so many people were in and out of this house factor into the case against Brian Koberger? The fact that this Kings Road house was a party house is a huge big deal because it expands the universe of suspects. Who was there at the time of the murders? What was their connection to the victims? Who had access to this home before? Did they have possible motive to kill? For months we've been calling this a party house. This is a party venue. One of the most important parts of this case is that DNA. And what we know is this is a party house. We know that there were hundreds of kids in this house. It could even have included him. And the thing is, is if he was in this house, are you suggesting that these four know everybody who's been there? I doubt that. And as a result, if he says, I was in this house before, that's why my DNA is in this house. Now we talk about that, and we talk about DNA transfer, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you might have a completely different trial. It's not just that the defendant's DNA is in the house. It's on a knife sheath, which is found next to Maddie's body. 
I'm a former prosecutor. This is game over DNA. And it's not just any DNA. It's single source DNA. Single source DNA profile is the most informative type of profile we can hope to get from a crime scene. It's a lot of clear information and it's a lot of very specific information. If you're looking for DNA from a perpetrator, that's something that's related to a weapon and a weapon that could have been used in the commission of this crime. It would be a very rare event for anyone else to match with a single source male DNA profile. So it's very strong evidence. Brian Koberger. After graduating from DeSales University in the spring of 2022, Brian Koberger was accepted into the criminology PhD program at Washington State University. At the time of the Idaho student murders, Koberger was a teaching assistant. And a few of his students came forward to say they noticed a difference in his behavior after the murders. No reason to connect him to that, you know, at the time, but definitely around then, um, he started grading everybody just a hundreds. He seemed preoccupied is what I would have said at the time. He would come in, be there for 10 minutes, leave, not say much. So he didn't really do that much, but you could tell there was some off about him. What's still unclear is the prosecution's theory as to why he would want to kill these young people and what, if any, was the connection. Motive is not an element of crime or murder. Uh, but of course, every inquiring mind wants to know why. Why would Brian Koberger do this to four innocent victims, college students? Um, could the state go to trial without motive? Absolutely, but I bet they won't. And the problem here is that we don't even have a connection to these victims. Forget about motive. Steve Gonsalves, Kaylee's father, believes there's a good chance the murderer was tracking Kaylee and or her best friend, Maddie. I'd be a little bit surprised that there wasn't uh, a clearer touch point that would suggest that he was interested in one or two of the people more than he was the others. An Instagram account that was taken down shortly after Koberger's arrest with the username of Brian Koberger was following several members of the Koberger family. The account also followed Madison Mogan. I'm Benjamin Mogan. I'm uh, Madison Mogan's father. I first met Maddie Mogan's father, Ben, at the Mad Greek restaurant a few weeks after the murders. Maddie and Zana both worked there. It's a popular restaurant in downtown Moscow. Tell me about what a beautiful person she was. Well, she was she was so great. She was she lit up every room she'd come in, and she was just so positive and fun, and uh, and we just we love her and miss her so much the Mad Greek restaurant. It's also one of the first places that comes up if you search for vegan food in Moscow. We know Brian Koberger claims to be a vegan because he asked for a vegan meal plan at the jail. So maybe he did see Maddie and Zana at the Mad Greek and, and sort of became obsessed with them. But prosecutors made a point in their, in their probable cause affidavit. They went into detail about this Reddit post that the defendant allegedly made, calling out to criminals to provide him with the reason why they chose their victims and committed their crimes. Now, I understand he studies this stuff, but this is still a little strange. Sounds like he's looking for the reasons why people do the things that they do. Maybe to answer the question for himself, maybe to explain for him 
why he's motivated in the way that he is. Are you trying to figure out who you are or are you trying to figure out who they are? And in this particular case, I think the prosecutors are gonna say, yeah, this was about him trying to figure out who he is because we can tell you who he is. He's this guy. I am Siobhan Scott. I am a psychotherapist from Portland, Oregon. So what are your thoughts about this Reddit post? I, I see a theme with him for years um, in his online writings of going back and trying to make sense out of himself. And I think he was in that category of, I'm studying all this because I wanna understand myself. And so I think that was driving his research. There's also, in a rather perverse way, perhaps an attempt to develop some sense of camaraderie with other people and to get a sense of maybe I'm really not the only one who has these thoughts and feelings and experiences. What do his studies tell you about Brian Koberger? It's not that unusual for sadistic killers to study criminology. We think of the BTK killer in Kansas, the Golden State killer in California, both had criminology degrees. And the California killer did go on to become a law enforcement officer. And there have been quite a few others. So I think there are three reasons people study criminology. The first is because they're altruistic and they really want to make the world a safer place. So they have good motivations. The second reason is because they're absolutely fascinated by the criminal mind, which can be a fine reason. But the dark side of that is they're trying to figure themselves out. And the third reason is because they have a plan to commit crimes and they're studying police tactics and procedures so that they can become a better criminal. And if Koberger is the killer, I think those second two reasons would be at play. Whoever did this, be it Koberger or someone else, is a sexual domination killer. And this is someone that's created a sadistic theatrical production based on fantasies that he's had for many years. Now the fantasies serve to meet his emotional needs to express rage at women and to have a sense of godlike power because others' vulnerability makes him feel invincible and their deaths make him feel like a god. Coming up, the legal battle ahead as prosecutors seek the death penalty. To have a full defense, he absolutely needs to know that this investigation against, against him was 100% according to protocol. Plus, remembering the victims. Through all this, I hope we can all look through that dark tunnel and see the light and follow that light. And I pray that we have justice someday. Since his arrest in December 2022, Brian Koberger has made a number of court appearances and his defense team has filed a number of motions challenging everything from the grand jury indictment against him to how the investigators processed the DNA found at the crime scene. They didn't get a hit for the DNA that was found at the crime scene with the national database. So they moved to a public database, one of those genealogy databases, and they got a hit. And it was for the suspect's father. But now the defense is taking a closer look at that saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. We want to know and we want to see exactly how you tested all of this DNA to get that result. 
What's going on in Brian Koberger's case that's very concerning is the government does not want to turn over in discovery what all was searched, what databases were searched, and what records were obtained. When you're talking about a defendant's right to a fair trial and his due process and his Sixth Amendment to, you know, to have a full defense, he absolutely needs to know that this investigation against, against him was 100% according to protocol and that there was integrity in this investigation. The defendant apparently has an alibi. Now, a little strange here. They say, his, his attorneys, that he likes to go out at night and in the early morning hours and sort of drive around, and that's what he was doing at the time of the murders. Couldn't have done it. Koberger's alibi is that he wasn't at the crime scene, but instead he was driving around alone. That statement of his alibi doesn't tell us obviously exactly what you know, time he was driving, where he was driving to and from, and why. I mean, we don't have any of those details. He's not saying something that's completely inconsistent with the evidence. The defense is also claiming that cameras should not be allowed inside the courtroom, claiming Koberger's every move is being analyzed in a way that's prejudicial. Kaylee's father, Steve Gonsalves, has some thoughts on that. If you're not a personable person and you um, give off weird vibes, yeah, you probably don't want nobody to actually see the truth and see who you are and, and read you for who, how you behave. You can't hide the truth, man. Just I'm just, I'm so tired of the, the secretive and all that stuff. Just I want this stuff to be out in the open. I want all the evidence out. I want it to be clear. I want the community to look at that evidence. And hey, Miss Taylor, is Mr. Koberger prepared to plead to these charges? Your we will be standing aside. A plea of not guilty was entered for Brian Koberger after he chose to stand silent at his arraignment. His trial is expected to begin sometime in 2024. Kaylee, you will never be forgotten. We will live for you every day with your mentality in our mind. We love you so much. She embodied her own sunshine, and that's when her skies became limitless. I sent you my Guys. heart. I met Charlie D'Amelio, Jack. Most important is love. Like it's the only thing you know how. Nothing even matters except love and human connection. You know, I'm not a big drinker, but maybe I should have something. You're not a big drinker? I was lucky enough to be able to explore life with Maddie. Maddie was the best at spreading love. Zana was the funniest person I knew and made me laugh every time I spent time with her. Honestly, it's just Zana, you will not be forgotten. You have impacted so many lives and have given people so much love. Ethan was always someone you could count on to make you smile and uh, cheer up your mood. And I feel so lucky to have shared so many great memories with him. Minions, tonight we steal the moon! Through all this, I hope we can all look through that dark tunnel and see the light and follow that light. And I pray that we have justice someday.
There you have it, the very latest Court TV special. If you'd like to see this special or more of our original productions, they are all available to stream for free on the Court TV website. Just check the show notes for a link. And we'll continue to track all the latest developments in this case and many other high-profile cases on my show, Closing Arguments, which airs every weeknight at 8 p.m. Eastern. Thank you all so much for listening. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.